welcome to our time of worship, and as you can see, we are sharing the Lord's Supper together as part of our time of worship. We've decided not to go outside or not to attempt to go outside to sing this morning because of the rain being on and off. And then I do need just to mention that um, the Holiday Club invitations are now printed and available, so if you'd like some, you could get those from Steve. But do be praying, please, as they go out in the next few days to the different schools. Pray that we'll have lots of kids uh, wanting to come and that the uh, regulations will be such that we're able to have a good number of them. And then we are meeting again at uh, 6 p.m. this evening, having finished our series in Matthew uh, last week. Uh, The next couple of Sunday evenings, we'll be looking at the Psalms of Ascent. But this evening, it's Acts chapter 2, following on from the end of Matthew. So I hope that you can join us for that. And then the long-awaited Tasty Desserts is here on Tuesday. And just to make it really clear, this is at the church. It hasn't been at the church before. But to enable us to do it uh, the way we have to do it, it will be at the church. And that's to raise money for Taste working in Nigeria. And then uh, another... Uh, First this week, we are having in-person prayer here at the church, so Thursday evening, 7.45, not online, but here at the church, and I hope that you can join us for that also. And then the last thing I need to mention is uh, two opportunities for service in the church. Uh, There is a need for lifts for a handful of church members who are requiring lifts And if you feel like you might be able to share in that, not doing it every week, but taking a share, you could contact Alan and Elsie Boynton, and they'll tell you what's involved. Uh, You wouldn't be committing if you just asked them uh, what's, what's going on with that. And then the same with communion volunteers for communion setup. If you'd like to find out more about what's involved in that, you could contact Morris Grimmett, and uh, he will give you the details. We've come together to worship God. Uh, We look up to Him even as we bow before Him. So let's speak to Him in prayer. Lord God, we praise You as the living God, the God whose Word is alive and active penetrating hearts. We praise you as the God whose spirit is at work, convicting men and women about sin, righteousness, and judgment. We praise you as the God who is active through your church. You're at work to open the eyes of all kinds of people, turning them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We praise you too as the God who is active in each of our lives, not only to bring us to Christ, not only to enable us to turn from sin and live for Christ, but you are also at work to bring us at last safely home to the presence of Christ. You are the God of our past, our present, and our future. And we join together to worship you this morning. Will you fill us with praise for what you have done for us? Will you make us alert to what you're doing in the present? And will you give us great anticipation 
for what you will do in the future. We ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Going to have a reading from the New Testament now that describes what the future holds for us as God's people. It's from the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could, could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our Lord, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Our first song reminds us that our present and our future depend on the work of Jesus Christ, from the squalor of a borrowed stable. Give me hope of 
Sunday school are going to be moving next door. We're in a section of Deuteronomy that keeps bringing us back to the one place of worship. In chapter 12, Moses told the Israelites, when you cross the river Jordan into Canaan, the Lord your God will choose one place of worship. So you're not to be like the Canaanites who wor whose worship is all over the place. The Lord will choose one place for you. That's where you're to seek him. That is the only place you will meet him. For the Israelites, that one place of worship would first be at a place called Shiloh, and then much more famously, it was Jerusalem, where the temple was built. And then later, the New Testament showed how both Shiloh and Jerusalem were actually pointing forward to the supreme one place of worship. Jesus Christ, the New Testament says, is where we truly seek and find God. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So as Christians, we read the Old Testament knowing our worship is to focus on Jesus, not Jerusalem. But at the same time, we read the Old Testament knowing the principle has not changed at all. Just as much as the Israelites, our lives are to be centered on God's one place of worship. So as we read Deuteronomy, we expect to be taught about our own worship. And what we find is, after the one place of worship was first mentioned in chapter 12, we keep coming back to it. 
So Moses has branched off to talk about other things like clean and unclean food and generosity to those in need. But the focus keeps coming back to the one place of worship. And that is on purpose. It's making the point that whatever else we might need to think about, whatever else we might need to be involved in, our lives must be centered on the Lord. Worshiping Him, nurturing our relationship with Him, that must be the center. That's what will give us rightly ordered lives. And, by the way, that's what will make us most helpful to to those around us. And this morning, in the passage we're going to look at, God's people are presented with the circle of worship. You've probably heard about the circle of life. Well, this is the circle of worship. In this passage, the Israelites are given three annual feasts or festivals, which are going to give a regular rhythm to their lives and their worship. The circle of worship will keep their focus where it needs to be. And as we look at this, we'll see later parts of Scripture show how this has ongoing significance for us as Christians. But first, let's read about it here in Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 to 17. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not eat the the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning return to your tents. For six days eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day hold hold an assembly to the Lord your God, and do no work. Count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing corn. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. 
For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. This is God's Word. And those last two verses of the passage make it clear the year is to be built around these three festivals. They give a rhythm to the life of God's people. There were other events in the worship calendar, but these three are the pilgrim feasts. In other words, when the Israelites are finally settled in Canaan and they spread out across the whole land, on these three occasions, they are to travel to the one place of worship, three annual pilgrimages to celebrate together. At the moment, we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent on some of our Sunday evenings, and that little songbook was apparently used during these three annual pilgrimages. Biblical worship has never been for isolated individuals. It's about God's people joining together to worship. But as I say that, we might wonder why verse 16 only mentions the men. Well, we know from earlier parts of the passage, the feast is for everyone. All God's people are invited and encouraged to come. And here, the specific mention of the man makes it clear they are to lead in this. They're to make sure these worship festivals are a priority. They're to make the time for them. They're to enable their families and members of their household to get to the one place of worship. So as we go through this passage, keep that in mind, man. You are to take the lead in this circle of worship we're going to hear about. In your family and in your involvement in the church, you are to prioritize these things yourself and you're to take the lead in helping others enter into this. Some men think the Bible gives them the privilege to boss people about. But actually, if you're a man, what the Bible gives you is serious responsibility. Be a committed worshiper. A committed worshiper who leads and encourages your family and your church in worship. And then these three festivals of Israel give us three emphases to the worship of God's people. They tell us we're to praise God for past deliverance. We're to praise Him for a present blessing and for future hope. And we'll find out that along with each of these, Scripture calls for three responses from us. But first of all, we praise God for past deliverance, salvation through sacrifice. Verses 1 to 8, one to eight deal with the Passover, otherwise known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was the climactic event of the exodus from Egypt. God had committed to deliver Abraham's descendants from the harsh oppression of the Egyptians, but Pharaoh and his people were determined to hold on to their slave workforce. And as the Egyptians resisted God's will, 
God brought a series of ten plagues on Egypt. Well, we call them plagues, but they were really displays of God's power and authority. And the final display of God's power was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. God announced that they would die at midnight. But the truth was, God's own people deserved to die too. God's salvation was by grace. It was not because the Israelites were somehow better than the Egyptians. And in His grace, God provided a way for His people to be saved. Exodus chapter 12 tells us that each man was to sacrifice a lamb for his family. He was to paint some of the lamb's blood on the door frames of the house. And when God's angel of death came that night, He would pass over the houses that were daubed with blood. The blood signaled that a substitute had already died for the people in that house. Those people were saved by the sacrifice of another. And as they waited to leave Egypt, the family was to eat the meat of the sacrificial animal along with bread made without yeast, unleavened bread. And that great deliverance was then commemorated ever after in the salvation meal called Passover. Here in Deuteronomy, the Passover festival anchors this circle of worship in the life of Israel. All of their worship rests on this. Without the Passover, there would be no Israel. And in case you and I have trouble making the connection with Jesus Christ, the New Testament spells it out for us. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The salvation Israel experienced from Egypt was pointing forward to the greater salvation Christ would bring, salvation from sin. And of course, Jesus gave us a meal to celebrate that. Later this morning, we'll share the bread and wine that symbolize His body and blood. Jesus gave Himself so that God's judgment would pass over all those who trust in Him. Because on the cross, Jesus already took that judgment for us. He died as our substitute. So for God's people always, the solid anchor of our faith and worship is past deliverance, salvation through sacrifice. Whatever else we talk about, whatever else we sing about, we never go far from this. Without this salvation, we have nothing to celebrate. With this salvation, we always have reason to celebrate. Whatever twists and turns our lives might take. And so if you're wondering what worship is all about, start with this. The God of the Bible is the God of salvation. He rescues people who deserve death. All we have to do is put our trust in the sacrifice God has provided. In the Old Testament, that was a lamb. But when Jesus arrived, it became obvious all of those Old Testament lambs were just pointing to Him. He is the true once-for-all sacrifice that brings salvation.
So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, this is where it all starts. Without Jesus' sacrifice, you have nothing to celebrate. But when you're trusting in what he did on the cross, your sin is forgiven, and you can begin to leave behind sinful ways of living. Because leaving sin behind is the appropriate response to God's salvation. We don't just celebrate the salvation we have in Christ. We also turn away from the sin that took him to the cross. You might wonder, well, where do we find that in our passage here in Deuteronomy? Well, in verses 1 to 8, along with the mention of the Passover sacrifice, we've already noticed there's an emphasis on the bread that goes with it. Look again at verse 3. Do not eat it, that's the meat, with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they were in a hurry, as verse 3 says. But just as the meat had a greater significance, so did the bread. If the meat was about a sacrifice dying in their place, what was the significance of the bread made without yeast, beyond the fact that they were in a hurry? Well, in verse 3, it's called the bread of affliction. If the sacrificial lamb symbolized deliverance, it seems the bread symbolized the affliction of life in Egypt. God was delivering them out of that. And so, leaving the yeast out of the bread came to symbolize leaving the ways of Egypt behind. As the Israelites prepared to celebrate the Passover, they would diligently scour their houses to get rid of any yeast. And the New Testament shows how that applies to our worship today. Earlier, we heard that Christ is our Passover lamb, and if we go back to that same passage in Corinthians, we find it speaking about the bread too. Paul says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival." Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, how do we Christians celebrate God's deliverance? We trust in Jesus, our Passover lamb, and we commit ourselves to a life of turning from sin. We commit to get rid of malice and wickedness in our lives, whatever form they take. That's the yeast you and I are not to tolerate. So true worship doesn't just praise God for his past deliverance. True worship responds to that deliverance with a life of turning from sin. And it is a life of turning. It's not the work of a moment. It's a lifelong thing. Different seasons of life bring with them different temptations. Different circumstances bring different pitfalls. But in every season and circumstance, 
men and women who rejoice in God's salvation will also be committed to getting rid of sin. And even when we fail, our joy in God's salvation spurs us on to forsake the sin that Jesus died to save us from. So past deliverance is the anchor of our worship. But God's people do not live in the past. Our worship also celebrates present blessing, a God-given harvest. Verse 9 says, count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing corn. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is that this isn't the only place the Old Testament describes these three pilgrim festivals. And that's helpful for us because here, as Moses deals with the festival of weeks, he actually gives very little detail about it. At least he gives very little detail about how it's to be celebrated. That's because he's focused, actually, on who celebrates it. We'll get to that in a moment. But the reason Moses doesn't need to describe the festival in detail is because he's done that earlier in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23 tells us when the first heads of grain appear, those first fruits of the harvest are to be waved before the Lord in thanksgiving because he gave the harvest. And that first sign of God's blessing gave assurance that more was going to follow. And then seven weeks later, the harvest that followed the first fruits was celebrated with this festival of weeks. And as I said a moment ago, the focus here in our passage is on who celebrates this festival. Back in chapter 12, when we first heard about the one place of worship, there were instructions about who was to celebrate there. The worshiper, we were told, was to bring his family and other members of his household. So it was limited to those close to home. But look how here in verse 11, the list of worshipers is expanded for the harvest festival. Verse 11 says, Rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Yes, we have heard about the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows before in this book, but this is the first time they've been included in the community of worshipers. So these instructions about the harvest festival envisage a widening circle of worshipers. And we might say, well, great, but we're not farmers. How does this harvest festival relate to us? What does it have to do with our worship? Well, what have I told you that the New Testament uses the term first fruits? The New Testament tells us the risen Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be made alive. And the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of God's new creation life. 
Most of us don't know a thing about the grain harvest, but because Jesus is risen, we know there is a resurrection harvest underway. And because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, we know God's new creation life is already at work. And then what if I told you that the Greek name for this Old Testament harvest festival was Pentecost? That name might ring a bell. And what we find at the beginning of the book of Acts is the followers of the risen Jesus bouncing around Jerusalem, sharing that resurrection message with gusto. No, that's not what we find. When the book of Acts opens, Jesus' followers are sat in a room together, waiting. And what they're waiting for comes in Acts chapter 2, which tells us, when the day of Pentecost came, in other words, when the people in Jerusalem were celebrating this Old Testament harvest festival, they, that's Jesus' followers, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And as we read on in Acts chapter 2, what we find is those men and women who had the message of the risen Jesus and the resurrection life he brings, those people who had the message, now they also had the presence of God's Holy Spirit to fill them with power as they proclaimed the message of Jesus. Those first followers of Jesus were the start of a God-given harvest. And we saw a moment ago the details of the Old Testament Harvest Festival described a widening circle of worshipers. And that is pretty much the story of the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost, and it just spreads further and further out. Until by the last chapter of Acts, the message of Jesus has spread all the way to Rome, bringing new life in Christ to all kinds of people. The arrival of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the start of a worldwide harvest. It's a harvest that continues today. And so as God's people, one of the great uh, emphases of our worship is the fact that our God is powerfully active in this world. Jesus Christ didn't just rise from the dead and then leave us to sink or swim by ourselves. No, he sent his Holy Spirit to work through us, to bring in the God-given harvest. Not a harvest of grain, but of precious lives. Men, women, and children brought from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And so one great emphasis of our worship is praising God for his work in the present. And our response to what God is doing is service in the Spirit's power. That's what kicked off on the day of Pentecost. God's work through his people, the followers of Jesus. 
You and I are not called to be spectators in this harvest God is reaping. Our life's work is to join in the harvesting. Now, that won't necessarily mean that we're all going to lay droves of people to put their faith in Jesus. But it must mean that you and I are at God's disposal. That we're ready and eager to be used by Him in some way as He reaps His harvest. So our worship is anchored in what God has done in the past, bringing salvation at the cross. But the God we worship is not stuck in the past. And so our worship must honor Him as the God who's at work today, even in our place and time. And when it comes to playing our part, we don't sit around waiting for the big moment to come. No, we look for the little moments where we can serve God in our situation, pointing people to Jesus in some way. And all of those little moments add up. God uses us in little ways as He brings in His great harvest. The worship of God's people celebrates past deliverance, present blessing, and finally in this passage, a celebration of future hope, the final feast of rest. The third and final pilgrim feast of the year was the festival of tabernacles. In the book of Exodus, it's called the festival of ingathering. And that might make us think it's another harvest festival. But actually, what it celebrates is the successful processing and storing of the harvest. So all the grain has been threshed and sifted. The wine has been pressed out from the grapes. The fruits of the harvest are all safe and secure. They're no longer vulnerable to waste and decay. Everything is safely gathered in. Everything's in its place. Finally, and it's time to enjoy the results of the harvest. And that's why this final festival was the most joyful of all. In fact, as he deals with it here in verses 13 to 15, pretty much the only detail Moses gives us is the joyfulness of it. In verse 14, it's the time to be joyful. And in verse 15, your joy will be complete. Elsewhere, we're told the Israelites were to build temporary shelters or tabernacles as they celebrated this festival. The shelters were part of the celebration. They were a reminder of the temporary dwellings they'd lived in on the way from Egypt to their permanent home in the Promised Land. And then the joy of the festival came from the fact that now they were finally home. And the harvest was safely gathered in. They could enjoy the rest God had given them. His people, secure at last, fully provided for in His presence. This final feast completed the annual circle of worship. But if we read on in the Old Testament, what we find is the Israelites did a pretty rubbish job of maintaining this cycle of feasts. The celebrations were sporadic at best, 
And when they did happen, they were contaminated with a lot of stuff that did more harm than good. Their neglect of worship went hand in hand with turning away from God. And as a result, the end of the Old Testament finds the Israelites not secure in the land at all, but in exile, ejected from the land after generations of rebellion against God. And in that sad context, this final feast of rest was not a reality in the present. It was transformed into a future hope. And in the second to last book of the Old Testament, we find the prophet Zechariah focusing on this final feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering. In the final chapter of Zechariah's prophesy, prophecy, he is enabled by God's Spirit to look way into the future. And he sees people, not just from Israel, but people from all nations coming together to worship the Lord and to celebrate the festival of ingathering. In his vision, Zechariah saw not a return to the Old Testament feast. What Zechariah saw was the true future fulfillment of that feast. The time when God's people were all safely gathered in, able to enjoy his eternal rest and all the good things that go with it. And at the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John saw more of what Zechariah had seen. John tells us what he saw. We read it earlier. He saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, sitting before the throne, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what the festival of tabernacles was pointing to. This is the eternal feast. All of God's people gathered finally to their true home, safe and celebrating in God's presence. And now we see why this is a circle of worship, because the eternal feast will be filled with praise for Jesus, the Passover lamb who brought us salvation through sacrifice. Throughout eternity, we will never stop praising God for his past deliverance. And today, this eternal feast is our future hope. We look forward to this final feast of rest that God has prepared for us. And as you and I focus on this future hope, our response is one of joy in anticipation. Joy is not something you can summon up on demand. Joy doesn't work like that. If you've ever been ordered to be joyful, you'll know it doesn't work like that. Joy comes when we focus on a wonderful truth, and that truth spreads into our heart. Just watch the football fans at the Euros. No one orders them to be joyful. 
joy comes when they realize their teams put the ball in the back of the net or they're through to the next round. The joy of a football fan is genuine, but it's also an incredibly short-lived joy. It can fade in seconds when the other team scores. And at most, the joy of a football fan lasts for a day or two. But as Christians, our joy will be eternal. And we begin to experience that joy here and now as we realize that for us, the best is yet to come. Whatever wonderful experiences you might have had in the past, however full and fulfilling our lives have been, the good things that are behind us are nothing compared to the good things God has in store for us. And the things God has for us can never be stolen away. So in our private and in our public times of worship, let's keep these three biblical emphases. God's past deliverance brought about at the cross. His present blessing as we have the privilege of sharing in His harvest. And as we praise Him for the past and the present, let's fill our praise also with the future hope we have in Him. And as we come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we find that it speaks to us about the past, present, and future. It points us to our forgiveness in Christ. It shows us the pathway of our life now as men and women who follow in the footsteps of Christ. And this meal points also to our future in Christ as we look forward to the feast of heaven. Musicians are going to sing the first two verses of Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, and then we will share the bread and wine together.
As our servers come to prepare the bread, I need to mention that this meal is for those who trust in Jesus as their Passover lamb and who are seeking to honor their Savior by turning away from sin. We don't come to this meal as people who are perfect, not at all, but we do come trusting in our perfect Savior and seeking to leave behind the sin he paid for on the cross. So if that describes you, then please join in with this bread and wine. But if it doesn't describe you, or if you're not really sure, then please just let the bread and wine pass you by this morning. And as we're served, we'll keep the bread and then eat it together when everyone has been served.
Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's eat and remember. Now, as the wine is served, again, I'd ask you to keep the cup, and we'll drink it together when everyone is served.
forward to God's eternal feast. Let's drink together and give thanks. And now I'd invite you all, if you would, to stand with me as we come to the end of Behold the Lamb and then There is a Day.
Amen.